and welcome to Shattered Lives, an informed, conversational, cutting-edge radio show in touch with today's issues that impact the lives of crime victims, addressing the aftermath of crime, forging a path for hope, building awareness, and, and empowering listeners for the future. This is Donna Argor, a.k.a. Lady Justice, your host with my co-host Delilah Jones, president of ImaginePublicity.com, welcoming you to today's show and to our library of weekly archive shows. It is our goal to make a difference. And uh, so uh, good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, good evening, whenever you happen to be listening to this, if you're not listening live. We welcome you to a part two edition to a very esteemed guest. We were, we were very uh, fortunate to have uh, Dr. David Fowler uh, on our show last May to kind of uh, give us a um, medical examiner 101 treatment of um, what he actually does in his role and, and what that encompasses. But we didn't quite cover all of the issues, so we invited him back, and he very graciously is going to be talking to us about another aspect other than just um, death investigation per se. So before we bring him on, I want to say uh, good morning, Delilah, and um, great to have you on. I'm very blessed to have you every single week to do this show and a multitude of other things. And uh, Merry Christmas, by the way, too. Thank you. Good morning or afternoon, whenever it is. And uh, once again, you you figured out how to get... One great guest. I'm so pleased that we're having Dr. Fowler back because you're right. We just didn't have the time last time to cover everything, and I think there's a lot in within his job that most people don't know about and don't understand. So I'm looking forward to learning a lot more about what exactly medical examiners do. Right, and um, I, I think unfortunately. Um, People get a lot of their information just from TV shows, and maybe the other aspects are not quite as glamorous, and that's why people don't know, and that's the beauty of our show. So without further ado, um, Dr. Dave, um, welcome to Shattered Lives uh, Radio Show a second time. It's a pleasure to have you. Hello, Donna, and it's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation. Well, it's our pleasure, and we we always reap the benefits of your um, engaging nature and your your ability to teach us. And um, so we thought, thought today. I just wanted to share very briefly. I happen to have a, um, a a bit of a testimonial from someone we know from Management Resources of New York, who is a retired detective. And just to kind of frame the discussion a little bit, um, uh, Scott Wagner has said, I attended every autopsy of every homicide victim uh, I ever had a case with, not to mention others. And he said, we speak for the victim, yet the uh, the ME is like a translator. He helps the victim speak to us to help solve the case. They are most definitely unsung heroes of homicide investigation. I have the utmost respect for Dr. Fowler and others for their work. And so I think we touched on that in the first show. In, indeed, would you sort of call yourself a translator? <laughs> I don't know, but I think it's kind of a nice um, testimonial to, to what you, you, you happen to do. 
Well, Donna, I, I think that implies that what we do is, is a foreign language. So translation may well be um, a good way to, to frame it. But I, I think all we're doing really is gathering the medical facts that can be used by multitude of individuals and organizations at some stage in the future. Um, and I think that's the purpose for which the medical examiners, um, officers, or the forensic pathologists um, really exist, is to, to provide that information. Um, and I suppose we do consciously try to provide that information in a language that can be easily understood by many individuals. So I, I know at times when I give my autopsy reports to a medical colleague, they, they smile and say, but you aren't using medical language. And, and I then have to inform them that while pathologists who are working in a hospital do use more technical terms within their autopsies, uh, we tend to use colloquial terms so we won't use trachea, well, we will use trachea, but sometimes we'll put in parentheses right behind that windpipe so that if it is a family member um, or somebody else who's not medically trained um, is reading that autopsy report, they have the ability to understand it. So perhaps translation is actually a, a, a good word <laughs> to, well, to, to I use. Agree. I agree with that. I was a medical speech language pathologist for over 20 years, and, and it, you have to kind of switch your code switching language and your jargon and all of that, and I think it's very good that you, you tell your colleagues that we need to translate as you say. And I think kind of just to let the audience know, um, I, I thought I, I read in doing some research, and we're going to be doing more of an overarching overview of the public health aspects of what medical examiners do. And I thought how the dead can help the living, um, to maybe to unlock some answers of other things we deal with other than, other than just providing answers to a specific death. That might be a good framework for us. And um, so, so with that, you know, um, would you like to give us an overview with regard to the public health aspects of, of what is done in the medical examiner's office? Certainly, Donna. So I think everybody understands that on every single death that we investigate, we generate two documents. One is a death certificate, and the other mm -hmm. document that we generate is the autopsy report. And the autopsy report is a very comprehensive document that lists all of the issues that we identified. The death certificate is a much briefer document, and that document is the first part of the public health process. Um, as any other physician, that, that death certificate gets submitted to the Department of Vital Records, um, and either electronically or in paper form. But at some point, it's entered into a computer system within the Department of Vital Records, which is a public health organization. That is sent to the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta, the CDC, which is our federal public health organization, that information, the cause and manner of death, age, race, sex, all of that demographic data is then entered into their computer system and the cause and manner of death are then coded according to the international um, 
health codes. These are put out, they, they call the ICD-10 um, coding, International Classification of Death. And this is a World Health Organization classification. So now, every single death that occurs within the United States has multiple numbers after it. And these are the disease processes that contributed to the death of that individual. That becomes a very powerful cumulative repository of X number of people died of heart disease, Y number of people died of cancer, and how many of them were this particular kind of cancer. Is that kind of cancer um, seen in a particular area in the country? Are there sort of little pockets, or is it widespread? Um, do we see it in a particular um, group of individuals, etc., uh, etc.? Et All of that information can then be used to identify risks to the population. And that's where public health comes in. So the public health aspect is the community health rather than the individual health aspects of the medical examiner's work. So that autopsy report that we generated was a, I'm, I'm sorry, every I, single I, death, whether you die, it, yeah, whether you die within a hospital situation mm -hmm. and those doctors sign the death certificate, or whether you die and you're investigated by a medical examiner or coroner, all of the death certificates in the nation are coded according to those ICD-10 codes. And they're all sent to the CDC? Correct. In fact, they're all sent to the CDC without coding. The CDC codes them and then sends them back to each of the individual states, their own cases. So now the local public health departments can look at their own deaths and see what it is that is causing death within their community. And then they can put into place prevention uh, and other programs to try and reduce those deaths. Okay. That makes sense. Um, so with, within, within that framework, um, there are cert certain things that you do, like um, epidemiologic research, um, trying to identify, um, like I say, patterns and uh, collect data and do pattern and causes. I mean, do you do any of that, per se, or is that all done by the CDC? Um, well, see, yeah, certainly the CDC does do a lot of that um, mm -hmm. at the federal level. So they're looking at the federal level for major risks across the entire United States. Each individual state would be looking to see what in their state um, has a potential threat, and every state is different. So, for instance, down in places like New Mexico in the desert area, there are still some reservoirs of bubonic plague, which pop up every now and then. You don't see those up here in Maryland where I am. So if uh -huh. we did find a case of plague in Maryland, which do occasionally happen, then we would be looking to see where that person got it from. Have they traveled to an area where it's endemic and then traveled back? Have they imported it? Or... Did they, if they haven't traveled out of the state of Maryland, how did they get it? How were they exposed to something that doesn't exist here? So mm -hmm. there are obviously significant disease tracking issues on very potent, um, highly virulent diseases 
that can cause massive impact in a community. So, yeah, plague is a very esoteric description. Um, but, for instance, if you got a meningitis case in a university situation, now meningitis is highly contagious and has the ability to kill people within 24 to 48 hours. Um, even though there are vaccines out there now for meningococcal um, diseases, they only cover two out of the three strains. So we still see um, sudden death within a university dorm as a major medical emergency. We need to understand why that person died. And so we will be sending samples for culture and microscopic examination at the time of autopsy to see whether or not there are any bacteria uh, in the cerebrospinal fluid. And if they are, is it a meningococcal process? Because you know, then you've got to backtrack. And I can tell you, it happens at the most inconvenient time. So we have somebody who came home on vacation, and this has happened to us, from a university in another state, gets sick while they're here on their spring or fall break, die suddenly, we do an autopsy and we find meningitis. Now that person has traveled on a train, traveled on a bus, been in a car with people, come from a university dorm, every single health department that that person has passed through, all of the people they may have been in contact with need to be found and need to be given prophylactic antibiotics. Wow, that's, so that sounds like an incredible major, task. Uh -huh. yeah. So that's not, that's not a homicide where we're, we've got time to stop, analyze the evidence, give the bullets to the police, spend, and, and the prosecutors have six months or whatever it is to go through the process of preparing their case. We have to identify people within 24 to 48 hours. Um, so these... The public health machines uh, in, in the counties, in the state, and at the federal level have to be prepared to handle these things at a moment's notice. And often we are the initiator of the warning that this is something that they have to do. Wow, there must be quite a product. Does, like, essentially everybody stop what they're doing and contribute to this, or are there only certain individuals, like, within your office that would would handle that in terms of how, how well, we would dealt we, with? Well, the, the, the onus is on the medical examiner and any other physician who identifies something like that to immediately notify both the local and the state health officers. There's always somebody on call. Mm -hmm. They are then required to start the epidemiological backtracking of where that person, so they will immediately visit the family, put the family on antibiotics. Then there's a question and answer session with the family. Where's this person being? Did they travel? Did they drive themselves back from college or did they share a car with three or four buddies? And, and so the process, you just simply track back one step at a time, identify where these people have been, get back to the dorm where they live. The university can provide you with the names and addresses of all the students. Now, it'd be great if it's in the middle of term and all those students are living there. You just walk into the dorm and give everybody antibiotics. If it happens to be during spring break, all of those people have now traveled somewhere. Right. And wow. So you can imagine the enormity of one of these potential um, events. And you may not 
decide to give everybody antibiotics, but at least to warn everybody that this has happened. And if they suddenly start feeling ill or they get a headache or this happens, that they need to go and get urgent medical treatment um, immediately and not wait until um, it's too late. So there are different ways of doing it and depends on the disease process, etc. But um, you know, this is standard epidemiological backtracking of disease processes. That's just an, another w single example of what the MEs do at an individual level, which has public health impact. But then mm -hmm. there are multiple other databases and other uh, information gathering groups that we, con we contribute to. For instance, there is one which is run by the Consumer Product Safety Commission, um, and it's the Medical Examiner Coroner Information um, System. So if we identify, for instance, a commercial product which caused the death of somebody, for instance, a stepladder in somebody's kitchen which collapsed under somebody's weight while they were putting dishes and things away in the top cupboards in their kitchen using the stepladder or changing a light bulb. Now, that might just be a freak accident. But we will notify that particular data group that this particular model stepladder collapsed. Um, and nobody else might actually... That might be just the one-off. But for instance, imagine if over a period of six months, five or six coroner medical examiner systems suddenly started sending the same information to the Consumer Safety Commission. Now, mm -hmm. all of a sudden, there's a pattern. There's a pattern, yeah. And so this, this, this cumulative data, so this is not something that would be on a death certificate. This certificate would say um, head injury due to a fall or neck injury due to a fall. Uh, and that's where it stops. It doesn't give you the detail. So if you contribute to these other information sharing systems, you have the ability to have recalls and warnings put out on all sorts of consumer products, whether they be baby products, childhood products, bicycles, car safety seats, um, vehicle failures, um, ladders, tools, uh, electrical risks, you, you just name it and you think of it and there's a potential if that device failed, we should be notifying these particular organizations to allow a consumer investigation. Mm -hmm. Is there a certain numerical value you have to reach before it might, you know, like hit the media and or, you know, um, approach the manufacturers? I mean, is two people too little or, or whatever? You know, I think it's, you, you, you look at the number and the time over which it occurred and when the device was manufactured. So this is a 30-year-old device that's no longer being sold and may have just deteriorated over age. They're probably not going to react to it and it's not available for resale. They may just blow it off. Um, but if this is something which is relatively new, been on the market for six months, and they have five, six, seven of these suddenly come in, that, would, that, that may trigger it. Um, every one of these circumstances is going to be on a case-by-case -case basis, and the trigger will be different. I see. And it's not mm -hmm. something the medical examiner decides on as the trigger. That's, desi that's decided by the Consumer Safety Commission as to mm – -hmm. and, and their – epidemiologists as to what constitutes a risk 
given the population, the number of these items out there, how many were manufactured, over what period were they manufactured, all of these things would figure into their decision matrix. I see. Well, if, if someone um, dies from a fall and it's a head injury or whatever, are you obligated to find the like underlying cause, like you said, that certain certain if you're not participating in that database, they don't go beyond that, and they just the death certificate says said died because of a fall or head injury, and you don't determine beyond that. I mean, what's the uh, what would determine you you to go further? Well, well, typically, um, we have our own investigators go to the scene of the death mm -hmm. in most circumstances. And so they are looking at the items that are there that were potentially involved in the process of the death. And we will note those in our investigations. And then at some point, our investigators will log into the consumer safety products data reporting site and start putting information in. Mm -hmm. And if we, for instance, didn't have the model number of that ladder, but the consumer safety products people felt it was important, they at least have enough scene information, um, contact information, next to kin information, they can potentially trace that themselves. So we may not do all of the detailed work, but we certainly do pull the trigger, which starts that process. Remembering there are law enforcement officers at the scene, there may be medical people, the EMTs, etc. at the scene. All of those information sources can be uh, looked at to see whether or not you can identify an issue. So, for instance, if you come across a child safety seat in a car that didn't protect the child during an accident as well as it should have, the EMTs may actually report it. The police may put in a report the medical examiner or coroner may put in a report, or you may get a report from all three about the same incident. Uh, one would hope that the more reports that would go in, the better. Um, there is no onus on anybody to make that report. Um, it's not required. Um, it's considered to be um, a community service that you do as part of your normal duties to try and protect the, the greater good of our community. Otherwise, why do we exist? Sure. Yeah, and and from each um, each incident, whether it be a product safety issue or a uh, communicable disease or something, that that has um, uh, repercussions with regard to quality of life. And you're learning how to, um, in terms of preventative care, how let's talk a little bit about that. How do each with each case you learn more. And are you um, are they then revamping protocols with what to do because you know this was something that was unforeseen and now we can say we should add this to our protocol? Oh, absolutely. I mean, medical knowledge is not complete, so every time we identify something that was not expected, um, people now start looking at ways to provide better medical interventions to, to assist people. One of the things that we've noticed over the last couple of years in Maryland, because we have the benefit of a high-quality CT scanner in our facility now, 
is that many people who die at the scene of a car accident uh, or other head trauma often don't bleed to death, but they often have air entering their blood system through the veins. Um, as they take a deep breath, they lower the air pressure in their lungs, and that pulls air, like bellows, into the, into the veins because the blood can move as well. And if you get air in your veins, we all know that eventually that air bubble gets into a, an essential organ and causes um, death. Now, most people who die of air embolism die very quickly, and they die at the scene of the incident. So they don't get to hospital. They don't get a CT scan in hospital. So nobody knows the true incidence of air embolism except for medical examiners who have CT scanners. Because you can't see air in a body during autopsy because there's air all around. So oh, okay. it's not immediately and easily obvious at autopsy either. So for years this has been underdiagnosed. And we're seeing it more frequently now that we have this high-tech equipment in our facility. So we now have been able to inform EMTs, etc., that it's not just giving people fluids, but keeping them flat or even in a slightly head-down position so there's always positive pressure at the site of the head injury, which would then stop air getting into the, to the body. And this is done a standard procedure in the hospitals. Often people put people in a slightly foot-up, head-down position when they're putting central lines into the body to prevent the chance of air embolism. Of well, air embolism. Wow, that's very this, interesting. Wow. Um, so in fatalities that occur at the scene. Yeah. yeah. Wow, that's, that's really cool. <laughs> um, and and a very good example of you know learn sort of learning by trial and error, and then you identify this as you know um, something that everyone needs to know. Can you can you talk a little bit about? Um, the, I I had read where some in CDC material that some people feel that the public health impact and what you do may in fact outpace. What um, what is going on with the public safety aspect? And I know you intersect all of the time, but is it is it really kind of like a 50-50 um, equation here, where there's a lot going on? In, or um, what what do you have to say about that? As as we learn more about how our bodies and our brains work, and and um, it, are you doing more with public health versus public safety, or is it equivalent? Um, you know, I think there both the public health and the public safety agencies are equipped to do things in a different way. Um, so let's take, for instance, this major drug epidemic that's going on right now. Mm -hmm. uh, there is obviously a public health aspect to it, which is treatment, prevention, etc. And there's a public safety part of this, which is to prevent the drugs getting onto the street. And so both of those particular groups are using our data from the medical examiner's office. We have automatic live computer feeds, both to the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency, and to the state health department. They're getting identical information, but they mm -hmm. both use it in a different way. 
So they're squeezing the issue from opposite sides. The law enforcement are using it to identify types of drugs that are on the street and where that person may have bought the drugs. So they're going after the dealers and the suppliers. The public health department are then going after the prevention, identifying which groups are most at risk, getting educational programs, public uh, information statements out there, uh, etc., to try and prevent people from using drugs. So they're going after the users and trying to assist them with get, you know, getting into treatment programs and preventing other diseases from reusing needles, so needle exchange programs, et cetera, et cetera. So we see um, that type of information being used on both sides to attack that one single problem from both sides at the same time, which is just a wonderful, I think, example of real-time death data. If we we're not giving that data to law enforcement and the health department within two, three, four, five days of death. By the time they get that information, if it's three, four, five weeks later, that drug dealer has moved to a different corner. Um, it's no longer easy to track them down. The cell phones that were used for the dealing are, uh, have been tossed away. They've got new cell phones. Um, it get, becomes very, very difficult to, to do some of these um, interventions. So in Maryland, we're very, very um, fortunate that the lab that we have in our facility for drug deaths gives us the results within three days, sometimes well, three to five days is the usual window. Um, in most places in the country, you're talking three to five weeks. And in wow. certain places, it may be months. And, of course, they cannot do these rapid interventions to protect their community, which is, again, a, a major gap, I, I believe. Um, and therefore, both law enforcement and the public health department can't um, function efficiently as they should be able to. And so there's two yeah, different types of public health data that people typically look at. Uh, One is the quick and dirty, and I've just given you an example of the quick and dirty data which you can use for instant uh, interventions. And then there's the cleaned up data sets which have been verified and the quality is superb. Um, that's the stuff that's usually produced by the CDC having cleaned up all the data that's sent back to the states. That mm -hmm. is long-term epidemiological data so you can see the long-term risks to your population. But you've got to use both if you're going to be truly effective. Okay, so that's that's the second part. And then there is, is there a third one you said? Well, then um, often things like the, the drug deaths, we have drug fatality review committees, much the same as the right. child fatality review committees. Now, there you have a medical examiner plus a couple of physicians plus law enforcement. It's a, it's a multidisciplinary team, prosecutors, um, uh, you know, other scientific experts, school representatives, um, EMT and emergency medical services representatives, fire departments, all sitting on this multidisciplinary committee and sharing the information that they've got as part of their job. So law enforcement is superb at gathering information related to a criminal nature. The fire EMTs are first responders looking at saving lives, and they, they certainly make certain observations specific to their skill set. 
the schools can bring in school information. Um, the medical examiner brings in the death information on a particular case. And when you start putting all of that together, now you're painting a very large and very vibrant picture of that particular um, incident. And when you then add all of those various incidents together, you can get much more detail. And then you start adding multiple of those together. You start being able to put together a comprehensive picture of the various risks to your children, to your community using drugs, etc., etc. Um, so these are things which are going on in the background to really try and use the data and mine the data to the nth degree and then also bring the experts in each of those areas in to help interpret the data at that committee meeting. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm just thinking back with the, you know, with the, with the um, partners that we have with the, uh, in, in Baltimore, like the Guardian Angels and the influx of homicides in the last couple of years, like 300 in a year or whatnot, there must be a special fatality review for what's going on. Can you give us a little update with regard to what's going on now in terms of the volume of, of homicides there in Baltimore? Because uh, it really hasn't been national, I think, because of the election. What's going on there just as an update? And is there a fatality review for all of, you know, those children and other people that, you know, are, are being killed daily? Well, if, if, if the person who dies is a child, there are child fatality review committees. Mm -hmm. um, if the person is a victim of domestic violence, there's a domestic violence review committee. Okay. Uh, so there are certain ones. There certainly is no generic um, committee that reviews all homicides because that's complicated to do because all homicides are under the control of the state's attorney's office and at some stage are what we would call subjudicate. They're going to go to court, hopefully, um, and go through the judicial process. You, you don't want to be doing reviews on those um, up front because you may end up compromising the ability to, to, to prosecute properly at some stage in the future. Um, so there are certain things which are under the control. And I would say that all homicides, yes, they are reviewed because they all go to the state's attorney's office. But the review is going to be a closed and internal review within the state's attorney's office rather than um, a more multidisciplinary committee as we see for some of these other um, situations. As for the numbers of homicides in Baltimore, it's, it's very similar to, to what we saw last year. Um, we had a dip back in about 2010, 2011, where we were at about 200, 220 homicides a year. Now we're just back up um, somewhere close to about 300 or just over 300 in Baltimore. Oh. I think that many of these deaths, and this is just my own opinion, it has not been validated by um, any review, uh, because I said we just aren't reviewing it, but it seems that much of this is allied to the distribution of drugs and the violence that is associated with the drug trade. Mm -hmm. And are they yeah, we tend to see. We tend to see mm -hmm. Well, again, um, <laughs> fighting the drug distribution at every level. Um, you know, the state is certainly looking at the drug distribution, getting the drug dealers off the corners, um, and the homicide detectors are tracking down the people who are doing the shooting. So 
everyone at every tool that the, the the government can use whether it's local state or federal is being used to try and prevent this kind of violence you know for instance if heroin is cheap and many people are buying then there's lots of dealers if there are lots of dealers then there's competition and there's a chance of interdealer violence if drugs are very expensive then people aren't buying drugs Therefore, mm-hmm. there won't be as many dealers, and therefore the chance. So the issue is squeeze the drug supply, supply and demand, and stop the drugs coming in. You drive up the price, and more people can't afford the drugs. They'll go into drug treatment programs, and you tend to – you've got to do both sides of this process. So you do the investigation of the independent homicide, but you also go after the distribution and supply of drugs because that has a direct bearing on the whole process as well. Right. And then, you know, the health department, they're going after um, pharmacies and doctors who are over-prescribing and over-distributing drugs, what we would call pill mills. So these are doctors who aren't following all of the, shall we say, practice standards exactly um, and are a little free with their prescription pen and prescribe <laughs> too much. There mm-hmm. is, certainly are legitimate physicians, most physicians are legitimate, but in every discipline you're going to come across somebody who sees an opportunity um, to over, to, to make a profit. Um, and this happens every now and then. At our office, what we do is every single prescription bottle that's present at a death scene is brought in and photographed and the name of the doctor and the name of the pharmacy are entered into our database. That is then sent back to the health department who then run those particular pieces of data um, against their physician registrations, etc. And if they identify a physician that seems to be over-prescribing, they will then investigate. Now, some of these physicians are entirely legitimate, absolutely legitimate, because they run, um, and their speciality may be pain control. They're pain control specialists. You would expect them to prescribe more pain control medications, but others aren't. And if you suddenly find that, then there's, they, they deepen that investigation until they resolve whether or not that person is working within practice standards or not. So there again, just multiple uses of the data that we're providing to, to different partners um, are used for quality assurance, and mm-hmm. law enforcement type purposes. Yeah, well... So sometimes, Donna, I have a difficulty in my own mind separating what is public health and what is public safety because sometimes they're working on the same issue from opposite ends and sometimes they're working as partners mm-hmm. uh, and sometimes they're, 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 they're looking at different issues. So, yeah, I you know, sometimes can understand it's that. It's a, it's, a, it's, it's a not. dance. It's a dance. They're, you know, they're they're working in, in concert with each other. And I mean, simultaneously, how many cases might you? I, I've forgotten the the size of of your department and your staff. How many how many people are working together there physically? So we have about eighty four full time staff, and mm-hmm. about a hundred and ten part time staff. We're investigating over 14,000 deaths a year, which is about 35% of all deaths in the state of Maryland. 
Um, so that's a lot of. It's a high. Thirty-five percent. Yeah, it's about wow. a third of all deaths in the state. Okay. Um, and we're going to be autopsying somewhere in the region of about fifty-five hundred, five thousand five hundred deaths will be autopsied. Um, so th there is a lot of work going through this department. Yeah. But you had mentioned that, you know, you're able to do some of the cutting-edge public health discoveries because of your, your ability to do the CT scans and whatnot. And yours is, you know, a very advanced um, facility, but what what would be the typical situation in other cities of your size or even smaller ones where they don't have your resources? What What is it that they have to do that's different than what you're doing because you can be more cutting edge. Well, I think the two things which drive our ability to really function within the public health arena. One is that we have a very powerful computer system which should not which which should be in every single coroner medical examiner system. I mean that's not something which is difficult to do. Um, is to have a good database that supports the the staff and automatically emails information um data sets out to individuals that have legitimate use of those at regular intervals as those agencies have requested. So that, mm -hmm. that is the first thing. Um, CT scanning is a nice to have. It's teaching us certain new facts about mechanisms of death. Um, it makes the medical examiners more efficient. We believe the CT scanners pay for themselves easily over the lifetime in a reasonable sized office and they've become so less expensive now that it's difficult not to um, say that, you, that yeah, you, you should have one. You can't say they're too expensive to put in. Um, you know, years ago, they, when we first priced ours, it was over a million dollars um, for a half-decent CT scanner. Nowadays, you can get them for about $300,000 brand new. Um, oh. And they last mm -hmm. 10 years. That's $30,000 30, that's $30, a year um, over the 10-year life cycle. Um, they do have service costs involved in that. But even so, we've seen the CT evidence taken to court and caused um, individuals to take a plea and not go through the court process. They pled guilty for a lesser sentence, or to not have a jury trial to go with a bench trial. Now you can imagine the time it takes to select a jury is court cost time. Each of those court, courts cost $10,000 a day on average with the judge's salary and the various other support staff in the court plus the facility, etc., plus the prosecutor and the defense. You're looking at an expensive day. So if you can shorten it by a day, you've saved $10,000. Well, you're almost a third of the way to paying for your CT scanner this year. If you take <laughs> well, a plea a and you save it. an entire uh -huh. court, if you save the entire court proceedings and not have to have a trial for a week, now you've saved $50,000. You've paid for your CT scanner and some. Well, so I think you're a good not salesman. Not only have you made your medical... <laughs> yeah. You know, you, people... You, you, it's a question of just looking at the return on the investment. And sometimes the upfront costs look a little daunting, but the efficiency of the medical examiners, the accuracy of the medical examiners, the data that you can give to um, the body of knowledge, the information you can give to the prosecutors and the defense attorneys so that the right outcome um, comes up, both in criminal and civil cases, 
easily makes these machines um, payable for, for themselves, even in a relatively small facility. And if you can't afford one in your facility, you can always buy time on one of the private ones or one of the local hospital ones. There are ways around this issue. That's how we started in Maryland, was buying time from the University of Maryland. Oh, okay. And then over time you got your own and now you're, you know, sort of a one-stop shop, right? At least that's yeah, so I, I, I know most facilities that are being designed right now are being designed with room for CT scanners to be installed, and many of them are beginning to install CT scanners. So it is becoming more and more common. Mm. Slowly, is, uh, but it is would there be acceptance by juries? Um, you know how now everyone is looking at DNA as, you know, the end-all, beat-all, which is not necessarily true in terms of conviction, but you think over time with these tools such as CT scanning and that, that these will be, this evidence will be just as accepted to juries and the public as, as DNA has? Well, it's interesting. We've taken um, several cases to court, into the criminal court, where um, we were wondering whether or not they would be accepted, A, by the judges, and, and B, what the jury's reaction to this would be. And the, the cases that we've taken have been extremely positive. The judges have allowed the information in um, over the objections of defense attorneys. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's very useful in a court situation because the CT scan is not as graphic and inflammatory as a photograph of the deceased individual may be. And so therefore, the judges are more likely to allow it in than they would some of the actual photographs of the autopsy. So you can get more information to a jury to assist them in that very difficult task of making a final decision. Um, and I think that's the important thing. So it's been accepted. It's really been educational for the juries. The juries have found it to be um, a very useful tool, and it serves a different tool to DNA. DNA allows you to link this sample to that particular person. What the CT is doing is actually documenting graphically in a visual format the wording that you see in an autopsy report. And you and I know some people are visual learners or understand things by seeing visual demonstrative aids, and some people can learn by reading text. Um, so now you can stretch the information to both sides of that learning equation because the jury has to learn how to interpret that in, as part of their process of coming to their final decision. So I think it's very useful. Yeah, it, it sounds, and in, in knowing that, that you have to sit and listen to a multitude of verbal testimony over a long period of time, and you know, you, in terms of processing and remembering, you just you get saturated, oversaturated. So maybe these visual tools, and I don't know, Delilah, you're a visual learner too. Do you agree that this could be, you know, very useful to people? And wanted to also bring you in here. You have some questions you'd like to ask as well? Oh, absolutely. I agree with what, what you've already said. Um, the only thing I, I would like to bring up, and this is kind of going back to identifying risks of diseases and how that all comes about through your data going to the CDC, et cetera. 
what do you say? And I'm I'm kind of playing devil's advocate here. What do you say to the public where, you know, back then there were this this risk for cancer and this risk for heart disease and don't eat this and don't take that and don't do this and then. Ten years down the road, everything turns around. Um, I know a lot of people get frustrated with that kind of information, but how how would you address that? Well, we're addressing the causation of death. Um, the actual mechanics about how that came about sometimes are a little more difficult. But so you you start there. You're looking at the epidemiological issues. So does smoking contribute to death? Does air pollution contribute to, to you know, lung disease and death, et cetera, and cancer? Um, there what you have to do is long-term epidemiological studies, which is not what the medical examiners typically do. We would certainly identify the cancers um, and start that process rolling, and we do collect some basic epidemiological data um, as part of our investigation. Is the person a smoker? Yes, no. Um, how many packs a day do they smoke? Um, have they ever worked in a factory which has asbestos? Are they exposed to certain chemicals? We do collect all of that data, and that's in our database. Um, so if people mine that database, they can start making associations. But typically what happens is if you find a cluster of deaths due to a certain cancer in one particular community, then people who are epidemiologists will go and start teasing out why, what's in that area, are they downwind from a chemical factory, um, is there a power station nearby that uses coal, or what it may be, you know, making things up there. But you know, these are the sorts of things that they start looking at to see what may have. Is this a major shipbuilding area, and these people were all exposed to asbestos for years while they were building ships, uh, etc. So there are, there are lots of things that um, people learn over time um, that only become apparent after many years of exposure. But the ME tends to be the person who starts the, the process by identifying a particular cause of death. Mm. Very interesting. Yeah, I know it, it is a phenomenon that is hard to understand because like Delilah has said, every... It seems it goes in cycles. The, the, the data seems to be contradictory to what we did learn before, but maybe that, that is a bridge to understanding. Um, another thing I wanted to ask in kind of bringing it into the realm of time, because we've got about eight minutes left, Dr. Feller, just to give you a little time, time stamp there. Um, with regard to the fact that, you know, so many um, families are so distraught when a homicide happens or, you know, this was a missing person or whatever, and there's so much information that they want to know and process, um, a lot of times crime victims, um, and I'm not saying all, but some engage in high-risk behaviors and there might be contributory factors there. How do we... How do we make crime victim families understand that there is a relationship between um, you know their their behavior and what what happens with regard to the public health realm how do we how do we establish that connection or maybe convince them if we're able to work with your case this will benefit 
this will benefit others in knowing what's going to happen in the future, whether it's organ donation or or what have you. How can we, you know, build that understanding um, and connection there? That is a very, very tough question because you're talking, and, and having been in this business for, for unfortunately too many years now, you're talking about multiple, multiple cultural issues, multiple mm-hmm. religious issues, personal likes and dislikes, etc., uh, etc., et and you know, trying to, 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 to be the person who can resolve all of these heartaches for these individuals would be wonderful. Um, yeah. But you know that that really steps outside of the realm of what we do. Some medical examiners' offices do have bereavement counselors full time on staff, who mm-hmm. will contact the families and start that process. We work very closely with the organ procurement individuals and various other groups, bereavement counselling groups. Um, we give them information to contact the families and start trying to heal. Um, some of the the pain that those families are going through. Um, And then, of course, the prosecutors have their victims of crime um, support groups within their offices, and so does the state. So all of these people are slowly fed down those existing channels to try and get whatever support um, can be provided to them. And if those groups identify individuals that need more, um, they certainly do refer them on to 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 further care um, as best they can. Right, because not any one in individual entity working in a case can address all of those issues. And like I say, it's it's very hard. And if you're in an area that you you don't have a lot of resources um, um, to provide answers, and and uh, you're not able to travel to a university hospital or whatnot it, it, it's very difficult so but I, I you know I'm just very impressed with your your overall knowledge of of so many aspects and, and you, you appear to really really care about um, you know the, 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 the side of crime victims and I, I'm very heartened by that because there are so many people that just kind of compartmentalize their expertise and say well I don't do that and therefore, you know, it's not my job. Um, and you know, I've learned learned so much today. Is there um, is there a particular message that you would like to leave our audience with with regard to the issues that we have discussed today? What is it that we should that we should keep in mind as as um, crime victims or families of crime victims when when we're discussing uh, the topics that we have today? Well, you know, certainly I, I, I would suggest that people who have been victims of crime, victims of sudden death due to natural diseases, etc., um, that they have the right to understand why their next of kin died. Um, and this is something that their community should be providing them. Um, through either a, a good coroner or a good medical examiner system. And that information should be easily accessible to the families. And if it's not, because there are certain statutory limitations or other issues which prevent the families from getting that information, they should make that known to, to their legislators. Um, 
and they should be advocating for themselves and people who are going to go through the same thing at some point in the future. And again, as I said, in Maryland, we're touching 30% of all deaths every year. So that's 14, 15,000 individuals who die. That's 14 or 15,000 families. And if you extrapolate that out to how many people are in that family, plus all the friends, um, mm-hmm. over a period of several years, the coroner and the medical examiner's office are touching an awful lot of people in a community. Um, and they should be doing their job properly. And if they're not, um, you know, people can go to their representatives in the, in the local and the state legislators and say, uh, please, you know, we, we need this. And we need it because it does X, Y, and Z, because it protects us. Uh, and we're taxpayers, and you know, we need that resource um, appropriately done. And it's not an expensive thing um, for the legislators to, to provide the adequate resources to do it. Um, we calculated it for a well-functioning accredited office you're looking at about three to four dollars per citizen per year. That's the cost. Is that right? Wow. It's Very about a cup of it's about, a, about the cost of a cup of coffee at Starbucks, um, <laughs> and that's all it costs to have high-functioning offices with well-trained staff, good computer systems, quick toxicology turnaround, CT scans. Uh, in fact, we're doing it for a lot less than the three dollars in Maryland. So. You can you can create a very efficient system for not too much money, and really enhance the public's health and the public's safety at the same time. Well, then, do you find yourself edgy, uh, in front of audiences such as law enforcement or legislators to try to convince them of that fact, or is that our, our job as families? No, I do it too. Um, you do it too. But I can tell you, okay. it's so much more powerful when it comes from somebody who is a user of the information. Mm-hmm. I mean, if, if, I, if I go and advocate for my office, it looks like I'm self-serving. Okay. If somebody else goes and advocates for it, it is much more powerful. So, yes, I, I, I do lobby at, at, the state legislate, uh, at the state level in Maryland. I defend my budget. I make sure I've got the staffing. I convince people that we need these resources. But there are you know, I, right now I'm president of the National Association of Medical Examiners, and so in that capacity, I also represent all of the medical examiners in the country, and I do national meetings. I go to the Hill uh, occasionally to try and meet with staffers of legislators. And this, this particular week, both the House and the Senate passed a Justice for All Act. So, Donna, you may want to look that up mm-hmm. and uh, uh, post that to your website. It's gone through both the House and the Senate, so it's been bipartisan, and it's now gone on to the President's desk for, for signature, the Justice for All Act. Wonderful. And that, was, that was a lot of work that was done by, by a consortium of forensic science organizations, of which the National Association of Medical Examiners is one of the members of that consortium. A lot of work, um, years of work, and it's, it's gone through Congress. Well, that's that's very encouraging, and I I certainly will um, I will look that up and uh, post it. And uh, my last question before we sign off is: I just wanted to ask you, 
who has access to these databases to input? Is it just the particular professionals such as the EMTs, the uh, medical examiners, or is this something, databases that are open to other people? Um, there are some databases which are more open if they've been de-identified and the individual's <laughs> privacy issues have been protected. Um, so, you know, it just depends on um, the nature of the database and the reason it was, it was created. So some of these databases may well be relatively um, open because they would not be giving away identifying data. The one uh -huh. that we do want to absolutely protect is the privacy of the individual who died and the privacy of the family. Cannot ever compromise that. Um, Absolutely. So de depending what's in the database and the purpose of the database, if that information um, is not there, then some of those databases may well be a little more open. Um, for instance, if you wanted to, you could go to the website for the Medical Examiner's Office in Maryland and you can see our annual reports for the last 10 years. There won't be any information there on individuals, but they'll be tell you how many people died of drugs, how many people were victims of homicide, how many motor vehicles, what diseases we identified. It's all there. Yeah, as a part of transparency. So you'll often be able to get hold of reports. Very good. Well, again, I want to thank you so much for a, a wonderful hour. I hope that I, I can keep in touch with you because maybe there's other things we can discuss in the future. And I so thank you again, uh, Delilah. Any parting words? Well, again, just thank you so much for coming back to uh, yes. the airwaves with yes. us because the hour goes by so quickly. Yeah. We, <laughs> we, we thank you so much, and we wish you a blessed holiday. And please do keep in touch with me because uh, it, it's, it's a good connection for us to have, and you're, you're so generous. So um, enjoy your weekend and try to try to take a break from your work, okay? Well, thank you very much, Donna and Delilah. Um, it's been a pleasure, as always. So uh, keep up the good work, and uh, hopefully we will talk in the future. Okay, thank you again so, much. so much. And uh, Yeah, and uh, so um, we're signing off today for our show, and please do keep in touch with us for next week. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.